we're used to hearing a business voice that talks about how taking care of the environment is bad for our economy, that we can't afford to raise minimum wage to livable wage. And that singular voice that we're used to hearing from business is not the whole story. And in fact, there's many companies that have a very different story. Individuals who run these companies are truly committed to what a sustainable economy requires. In other words, rooting out systemic racism. In other words, recognizes that we all are in this together. These are people who care. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, Rethinking the Terms of Business with Jeffrey Hollander and Marianne Howland of the American Sustainable Business Council. First, the news. Sustainable Business Council has produced a new report, creating an economic system that works for all. What's surprising about it isn't that it talks about business and buyouts, economics and the environment, especially in the wake of COVID, but because its opening line is unequivocal. There is no going back. And among its talking points, reparations, Universal Basic Income, Universal Pre-K. Joining me on the show today are Jeffrey Hollander, CEO and Chief Inspired Protagonist of the American Sustainable Business Council, ASBC, and Marianne Howland. She is Chair of ASBC's Race and Equity Working Group. Welcome to you both. So to begin, let me just ask this, what is ASBC and why should the average person know about your work and your findings? Jeffrey, I'll begin with you. Thank you so much. Happy to be here with both of you today. What's interesting about ASBC is that it presents a very different face of business than the one that we're used to hearing from traditionally. We're used to hearing a business voice that talks about how taking care of the environment is bad for our economy, that we can't afford to raise minimum wage to livable wage. And that singular voice that we're used to hearing from business is not the whole story. And in fact, there's many hundreds of thousands of companies that have a very different perspective on how we need to create an economy that works for all and how badly that economy is treating so many people today. So this is a important development to create a more just and equitable society, a more sustainable environment where these companies are really looking to take care of all of their stakeholders, their employees, their communities, the environment. And this is a business voice that we don't often hear and historically has been sort of absent from the conversation. And Marianne, why from your vantage should people really be listening to this? What is different about this organization is that individuals who run these companies are truly committed to what a sustainable economy requires. In other words, rooting out systemic racism. In other words, addressing the issues that are most pervasive in minority communities and with minority-owned business enterprises. This is an organization that recognizes that we all are in this together. And so when I think about um, this community of businesses that are part of this um, brilliant network, these are people who care. These are people who want to create a compassionate economy. And I think that that's what makes it very unique and is why I'm so proud to be a part of this member community. Let's define some of our terms. Sustainable business, because when I first heard those two words together, I was thinking that it was about environmentalism, ecology. Why were those words put together when you founded the organization? First of all, we need to, to rethink the notion of sustainability because sustainability is about the environment, but it's also about people. It's about human beings and it's about the way we treat human beings. And we can't have a sustainable environment 
when we don't take care of the humans living on the planet. And so when we use the word sustainable, we're looking at it from a social lens as well as an environmental lens. We're looking at it hopefully from a more holistic perspective rather than just thinking about saving the whales and the other animals that live on the earth. Not that we don't wanna do that, but sustainability really encompasses much more than that. So we're really thinking about business behaving in a responsible way to all of, as I said before, the stakeholders that are part of its system. We have all grown up with the American mantra of what business is and what it does. And you gave that definition that the role of a corporation is to maximize profits for its shareholders. And yet you have some major businesses on uh, that you discuss in this report, Ben and Jerry's, um, Patagonia, really familiar brands who seem to be interested in this movement. But what is it that intrinsically differentiates them? Because they still have stockholders. They still yeah. have stock prices. I think the fundamental difference is about purpose. The purpose of most traditional companies is to make as much money as they can for their shareholders, despite the negative impact they might have on society and the environment. These companies that are members of ASBC are interested in making money, but not at the expense of negative impacts to the environment or society. That's what we call externalizing their negative impact. That is something that is just not sustainable. We can't have businesses that destroy the environment because without the environment, there will be no business. But why not? We've had those kinds of businesses in the United States since before it was the United States. I mean, the very founding of the United States is the Dutch West India Trading Company. It's a corporate entity that drives this, this nation forward. So why not? If, if it's been going on for 400 years, what's the problem? Well, we've sort of come to the end of the line when it comes to things like climate change when we think about the availability of fresh water, when we think about topsoil, we have used and abused the environment for many, many hundreds of years. And we've sort of reached the limit of what we can do. We will not be able to practice business successfully. And let's take another issue. In a society that is unequal as our society, we are not able to have the talent that we need to be competitive in a global market. We don't have without greater diversity at our businesses and on our boards, the talent that will drive us to continue to be as successful as we've been in the past. So this is in a sense, a turning point. Yes, it worked in the past. It didn't work as well as it should, but we got by today we have, in a sense, a new dawn and a, and, a, and a time where we have to live in harmony with nature and we have to not use nature more quickly than it can replace and regenerate itself. There just aren't enough trees. There's not enough fish. There's not enough fresh water to continue to sustain the planet. The name of that policy document that you're looking at, Janice, is called creating an economic system that works for all. And that is distinctly different. So yes, for whatever how many hundreds of years there have been businesses and, and profits, but what we also know is of the disparity in the gaps at, in terms of the impact on, for example, all kinds of marginalized communities when it comes to wages and healthcare and education and all of those factors that are now a part of the system that is, that is failing when it comes to a future of growth and growth in the economy for, for not just the US, but globally. So what the sustainable business movement is about is building equity 
in a system so that people, all people are part of the growth and economic development. All people um, have an opportunity at prosperity and that the environment will be protected for the future for our children. So yes, that's, there's been a way of doing business for 400 years, but look at the impact that it's had and look at where we are today when, when it comes to so much crisis, you know, between a health crisis, a climate crisis, an economic crisis, all of that is part and parcel of a economic system driven by greed and power rather than an ethic of responsibility, of, of social impact, of caring about people and planet as well. For each of you, what was the force in your own lives that pulled you away from the traditional way of thinking about business to bring you to your current or your evolving point of understanding? What was your turning point? For me, it was actually the Vietnam War and living through the tail end of what our culture and society was doing on the other side of the planet and the impact it was having on the people. And, and the sense that I had was, this is wrong and I had a moral obligation to do something about it. And it was in a sense that singular event that began to open my eyes on the role that we have as citizens and as human beings to act in an ethical and moral fashion and to speak out publicly, to show up, to demonstrate, and to really uh, uh, you know, understand that, that it's not just about me, it really has to be about we. That, that as individuals in order, and you know, for me, it's also about where I derive my own happiness and fulfillment from making those contributions, from taking a stand. And that experience during the Vietnam War was what led me and sort of shaped the rest of my life to be an activist, to try to behave as a responsible citizen. And what was the first step that you took to change yourself? Looking in the mirror, realizing that, first of all, I have to take responsibility for the role I play in creating these problems. These problems are not just the result of what other people do, that some of those problems exist right inside me. And looking in the mirror every day and, and, and being responsible for your own role in creating a world in which you don't always feel so happy about. You mentioned the Vietnam War. Were you drafted or? Luckily, I was not drafted. And uh, I had a high enough number that I didn't have to go. But I was a frequent demonstrator. Actually, at 16 years old, I was uh, out in Washington Square in New York demonstrating for the next couple of years until the war ended. And Marianne, what about you? My company... Ibis Communications, we're a branding and marketing solutions firm. And we built our, our business and our success on working with corporations, multinationals, diversity recruitment, workforce development, supply chain diversity, helping develop you know, community partnerships. And oftentimes the motivation for this work, these programs was either because a company underwent some litigation for discrimination or something and they needed to build equity and a reputation for being a better company or they were doing it because it was something they had to do. But what I always found was there were limits. There was limits to the level of commitment. There was limits to um, what the, my client, who, who would be an individual who would be responsible for working with us, what they could do. So it, it never felt authentic. It was always a mandate that was done because it looked good. It was a good PR campaign. It, was, it prevented them from being sued. The difference was when I met the community of the social impact businesses like the Patagonias and the Ben and Jerry's and the Eileen Fishers and the Amy Dominies, this was a different ilk. These were people who were authentically vested in, as Jeffrey described, the sense of purpose around protecting the environment and 
you know, humane practices. And, and when I got to them, this idea of inclusion, and um, it was a huge shift for me. It was a big reality check. It was a, it was a baptism, if you will. I mean, I, I just suddenly went from, you know what? I really had to make a choice. I no longer wanted to work with corporate, with corporate America. I, 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 thought I, I was immediately in love with this new tribe of people who were really transforming the way the world does business in a manner in which seemed to uplift or elevate human value over corporate value or recognize that elevating human value can enhance corporate value. So that was so attractive that I began to really refocus all of my work. Lost a lot of money. I mean, because my clients in corporate America, those are, you know, big budgets. They would just write huge checks. And I had, but I no longer could wake up in the morning feeling good about what I was doing, not as good, not to say that there weren't some, because we had some terrific clients that, you know, really were um, intentional. It's just a struggle. Whereas this new community of people who were, um, I thought just had, were trying to turn, um, you know, corporate success into significance. And that made a, that mattered more to me. So I began to shift my practice to that area and then ultimately wound up becoming a member of the organization and, and, and wanting to be um, a leader in that movement. Clearly as an African-American woman, you had to have gone through the point at which someone around you told you how lucky you were to be where you were at all, where you were professionally and raised issues about you disrupting the apple cart that allowed you to play to mix every possible metaphor to play in that sandbox at all. Um, clearly, you had to have got, gotten some, not just corporate pushback, but societal pushback. For you, what made it worth the risk? It, you know, Janice, that's a really good question. And, and the best way that I could answer that is um, just my own personal integrity, you know, just my own personal truth. You know, I, I really had to, you know, I'm the kind of person when you wake up and I look in the mirror, I want to love what I see. And, um, I, you know, I, I recognized that I didn't know, I no longer wanted to be a part of a system that was designed to work against us. That's designed and, and, and so, and one of the things that my journey has always been is always to have to overachieve, outperform, be better than, you know, because of that's the way the American society, the way it traditionally works. And it's, it's, it's exhausting. It was exhausting to always have to live up to this um, false, you know, premise. And so to make the shift into working in, with, like I said, with a community of people who actually cared, who actually cared about me and said so and conveyed that. And, and, and I knew truly valued my contribution and, and sought it out and, and, and became a, my support group, if you will, on this new journey and made me feel that, because um, that's really more important. You know, I, I, I had, you know, climbed up the ladder and had a, achieved a certain level of success. So I could afford to make that shift that, that I wanted to, um, you know, turn success into significance. And this was the way to do that. When we come back more with our guests, Marianne Howland and Jeffrey Hollander, and they are with ASBC, the American Sustainable Business Council. More here on the Janice Adams Show after the break. We're back here today on the Janice Adams Show talking with leadership from the American Sustainable Business Council. The co-founder, Jeffrey Hollander, and he is CEO and chief inspired protagonist, I love that, 
of the ASBC. We'll ask him a little bit more about how he came up with that. And Marianne Hallen, she is chair of ASBC's Race and Equity Working Group. Jeffrey, let me go right to that question. How did you come up with this chief inspired protagonist of the ASBC? I've had many, many, many titles. Uh, some of them have lasted for decades. Some of them, I did have a title that only lasted for a day. Uh, but, uh, you know, I love this title because it combines the idea of inspiration with being a protagonist at the same time. It's, 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 it's not enough to be a protagonist if you don't do it in an inspiring fashion. And so it's a title that I feel I'm always striving to live up to, that I'm always striving to become better at. Uh, and it's funny because, you know, titles are not something that always matter particularly to me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who uh, has always worked for himself I have started a bunch of businesses and always uh, found a way to avoid actually being employed by anybody else. Although for the first time in my life, I now am employed by ASBC. Uh, and it's a challenge sometimes after you haven't worked for other people to be a successful employee. Uh, so I'm still learning how to do that. But uh, that's the story behind trying to be an inspired protagonist. We talked about a turning point for you, but what was your work life before ASBC? What did you come from in order to know you had to come to this? So I'm a little bit of what you might call a serial social entrepreneur. I started my first business when I was 19. I spent 20 years starting and being a co-founder of a company called Seventh Generation that makes environmental household products. So I've been on this trajectory for quite some time, but the transition I made from sort of corporate America into ASBC was the recognition that while it was a wonderful thing to create a company like Seventh Generation that was an exception to the rules in a lot of respects, in order to bring about the change we needed, we needed to change the rules. We needed to make sure that we didn't just have a handful of cool companies like Ben and Jerry's in Patagonia, but that we were actually working on changing the way all businesses have to operate. And that was my motivation. My motivation was really to increase the impact and influence that I was having. And I felt that by, by working at ASBC, I could contribute to changing the rules that business played by and began to ensure that business starts taking on some of the responsibilities that they've avoided for far too long. You mentioned seventh generation products. So let's use uh, seventh generation as an example, just, just for the moment. Was there backlash against you even, not just normal co competition, but backlash against what you were saying about other people's products by the fact that you were creating yours? Yeah, companies that I won't name sued us, took us to court to try to stop us from having uh, our ability to grow and change the marketplace. And I even had challenges with my own board. I mean, we were very committed, or I should say, at least I was very committed to worker ownership. And we distributed a 1% interest in the company every year to our employees over a 20 year period of time. That meant that we were sharing the value we were creating and the profits we were creating with our employees rather than making sure they all go to our shareholders. Not all of my board members like that. Not all of my board members were so willing to share the value that quite honestly, the employees were much more responsible for creating than the board was. So what about shelf space and cutting through that kind of thing? Sometimes you've got to buy it. In many respects, retailers are in the real estate business and their shelf space has value. And there were times where we had to pay to buy that shelf space to prove to the retailer that we would generate enough sales for them and enough profits for them. It's a tough business. And we were competing with companies like Procter & Gamble, 
that are somewhere between 50 and 100 billion in sales, some of the biggest companies on the planet. But we were, we were really telling a different story. We were talking about building a different relationship with their customers. We were talking about fulfilling a different set of needs. And there was a, a change that was beginning to happen in America where people were beginning to think about the impact that the products they purchased had on the planet and other people. When you were a new company and really unsure of your profits, how were you handling your employees? How were you paying them at that point? Our goal was to pay our employees in the top 25% that they would make at a mainstream company doing a comparable job. Our employees were our greatest asset. We invested heavily in them. We did things that people thought were crazy. We had a masseuse who worked at the company three days a week and gave people free massages. We always provided people with 100% paid healthcare uh, from you know 30 years ago. And these employees were the most important reason that our company was successful. And there was no limit to how much we could invest in them. That was our philosophy from the start. And you know, when we went through tough times mm -hmm. uh, and we had to cut expenses, it was the senior management and people like me who lost money, not the lower income people that were working at the company. We made the senior management, at some paces, cut their salary by half if we were having a tough year. Uh, but we don't treat our employees well. We don't treat them like they're valuable resources. We don't invest in them in the way that we should. And as businesses, I think we suffer because, as you said, you call up customer service, you have a bad experience, and you don't buy from that company again. No, you, you, you don't. I mean, clearly, Jeffrey, you are very un-American when it comes to business because you are not following the corporate line. You are not um, doing what American business is saying it has become great for doing. Now, obviously, I'm being sarcastic, but it's still there. We, we are in, in a strange place in American society right now. So here you are trying to cut through that and to say that there is success doing it another way. Seventh generation, I gather you're no longer day-to-day -day involved, but it's, it's clearly become a successful company. So how do you do that? How do you change that kind of mindset? Well, the primary driver for our success was the loyalty of our customers. So the way we treated our employees, the way we created our, our products, the way we treated our community translated into incredible loyalty on the part of our consumers. And it was that loyalty that allowed us to grow to today what is a half a billion dollar business that's now actually part of Unilever, uh, which bought the company in 2016 for uh, a lot of money, uh, <laughs> over half a billion dollars. And what we have proven is that if you're patient and you think about the long-term and you invest in your stakeholders and you're a good corporate citizen, you can actually create more value than you can doing business in a very traditional fashion. So if you look at our stock price versus the stock price of Procter & Gamble, you would have made 10 times more money investing in seventh generation than you would have investing in Procter & Gamble. Mm -hmm. And we proved over the long term financially that this type of business works. It's not just the right thing to do, but it's the best way to create long-term value. Not necessarily short-term value, but long-term value. I asked you about your early treatment of your employees or relationship with your employees because we keep getting this drumbeat about how small business is against 
raising the minimum wage. And that if you raise the minimum wage, the sky will fall, chicken little. I raise that because we have this image of small business as like everything is mom and pop, but I don't know how mom and pop really is powerful enough to be the major driving voice in this economic decision. There's a disconnect for me there as to who's really speaking on behalf of mom and pop. But the question becomes, therefore, are you really in business if you can't afford to pay your employees a living wage? Marianne? Therein lies the question. I've had this conversation many times. I was a member of a women's business organization that would get together like a peer circle and talk about issues relevant to you know our growth. And, and one of the things would come up is the topic of wages. And my premise is, if you cannot afford to pay people enough to live on, then should you be in business? In other words, when you write your business plan, isn't that in your business plan that your employee, it should be that your employees are, are you know, the, the salaries are commensurate with a lifestyle that, of, that will be able to sustain them so they're not relying upon social services, which is a taxpayer dollars, in order for them to be able to survive and work for you. And we do have major corporations whose employees are turning to social services to make up the gap. Right, exactly. And so, and, and those are the businesses that will quickly say, you know, oh, it's my business, I've done it on my own. And I'm going, I'm thinking, no, you didn't. If, if the government <laughs> is, is subsidizing your, your business, then, should you be in business? The minimum wage must be, at the very least, a living wage. That matter of fact, the word minimum, I mean, it's if people are willing to put in work in full time schedules for a full work week and, you know, they got a family and they, you know, and they're coming in every day, you don't expect them to live like a decent life and be able to have health care. Should you know anybody I mean? be poor who's working? Exactly. And have food and medicine. I mean, that's not a business to me. That's just, I, I don't know. That's an abusive, <laughs> that's an abuse of um, human, human talent. And an abuse of government resources yep. and an abuse really of the, the public forum because you're lying to people. Yep. You're saying that you are doing something that you're not doing. And I really seriously doubt that mom and pops are driving that conversation. No, it is someone much more powerful who is has enough bandwidth to cut through and speak to, to that point. Someone who's, who's earning much more, much higher profits than mom and pop. Um, look, American Sustainable Business Council. I want to get specific about some of the points in your report, but I want to start with this question. How do you see where we are in order for us to discuss where you would advise the administration to go? Well, from my perspective, we're at a crisis. We have an economic crisis. We have a crisis of economic inequality. We have a health care crisis with covid and we have an environmental crisis with climate change. We're at a critical juncture and we need to act swiftly, but we also need to act boldly. We, we, we can't take half measures and in incremental change to address these problems. And you know, I think that, that, that for us, uh, two of the things that the administration has to do right away is address the economic injustice and healthcare crisis that we're facing. We've got to raise the minimum wage. We've got to provide healthcare for all Americans. We have to create a, a, a society uh, that's, that's not crumbling. And, and, and I think on the verge of, of what could even become civil war because we have, we have uh, abused 
so many people and taken advantage of them so bitterly. So this is an urgent situation. And uh, we also are facing an equal crisis when it comes to the environment. And sadly, the environmental impacts that things like climate change have fall most heavily on those individuals who are the least able to handle them. Low income, people of color, people living in, in low income neighborhoods. Unfortunately, all of these negative trends fall on the same group of people, whether they're negative health trends or whether they're negative environmental trends. So we have a crisis. We have to fight hard and we have to make sure that the Biden administration that is, that is off to a very promising, encouraging start doesn't take half measures, isn't willing to go part of the way. We don't need a small increase in a minimum wage that still leaves people in poverty. We need a big enough increase in the minimum wage so that people can live a decent life, so that they can take care of their children, so that they can really be around when their children grow up because they're not working two or three jobs. And these are urgent issues and they're urgent issues for business because in order for business to succeed in this country, they've got to have an educated, effective workforce. They've got to have consumers that have enough money to buy the products that they're selling. And they have to be able to compete globally with other countries that treat their citizens better than we do. To your report, under corporate governance, your top issue is board diversity. We all know that the people on boards are basically better off than most than the average person. They're well positioned, some are wealthy, not all. How diverse can a board be when those are the people on its board? And the second question becomes, even when corporations have diverse boards, as many say they now do. They're often constituted in such a way that by numbers alone, when it comes to a vote, maintain the status quo. How do you achieve board diversity in corporate America in the way that you're referring to? Diversity within an organization, within a corporation is also a key metric. It's a vital to the, to the growth and success of the business and an economy. So that aspect creates a necessity for diversity governance. Adding a board seat for diversity governance, that's one way of approaching. And when you're thinking about that, you know, diversifying a board, it's, it's very challenging to get the best out of an individual. It's hard always being the only you know, being the first and the only. So when you go out to begin that effort of diversifying your board, think about it in terms of two at a time, creating two seats. And it doesn't have to be replacing anyone. You can always, you can add a seat or you can add two seats. But what you also get is a maximum contribution from individuals who don't feel the uncomfortability of being the only one in the room, especially in an environment that you just described of all white men, all wealth, you know. Because if you have a board of 10 people and you increase it to 12, if they are two out of 12, they are easily outvoted in any corporate decision. How do we cut through that? I've been on a board where you said yourself, it's exhausting. And I just got, threw up my hands one, one day and I said, look, clearly I'm here as a twofer. And so I'm here because I'm black and I'm here because I'm female. And so I, I'm telling you, since you have me here as the only person on the board to represent close to 80% of the population, I'm gonna claim 80% of the vote. And <laughs> I'm not going that way. <laughs> but what really surprised me was not, oh, come on, Janice. It was that they actually were surprised that I knew that that was why I was there. Jeffrey? Well. Thoughts about that? I mean, if I found myself in a situation like that, I'm not sure that I would want to be that token representative who isn't really there 
to help educate, inform, and reshape the way that board is thinking. I mean, well, the, obviously, the, I was told I would be, right. which is why I was invited. But then you get there, and to Marianne's point about hiring twos, not just one, you get there and then you find yourself in this position and everybody else has a personal history just the way you do. And they're relying on their personal history and it's not telling them anything about diversity and inclusion yeah. or equity or justice. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think we need boards that reflect our country and the diversity of our country. And that includes not just having women and minorities, but also has workers on the board. We have a very, very challenging history when it comes to corporate boards because they don't reflect the stakeholders who the company should be responsible to. And uh, they do a far better job in Europe than they do in the United States. Countries have worker representatives by law on the board. And I think that it should be a regulatory requirement to shape the diversity of the board in a way that reflects the country and the business customers that are being served. You know, I, I had not thought about it this way until you just said what you said, but in a way that board is constituted to represent the top 1% of the company just the way everything in our society is structured for that top 1%, maybe 10%. But the 90 to 99% of the people who work for that corporation are not represented. So when we come back, more with our guests, Marianne Howland and Jeffrey Hollander. Jeffrey is the CEO and Chief Inspire Protagonist of the American Sustainable Business Council. Marianne is the chair of ASBC's Race and Equity Working Group. We'll be back with them here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. here on the Janice Adams Show. And this week we're talking with leadership from the American Sustainable Business Council, the co-founder, Jeffrey Hollander, and Marianne Howland. She is chair of ASBC's Race and Equity Working Group. They have a new report out, creating an economic system that works for all. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, what really struck me about that report was that it began with an unequivocal statement, even here in the wake of COVID, there is no going back. The new administration is saying build back better, but what will that mean and what will it look like? This plan from the American Sustainable Business Council gives insight on some of those talking points as to what it really should look like. Let me go down. We talked a little bit in the last segment about corporate governance and we talked about board diversity, but there's another point here, full cost accounting. What does that mean? So full cost accounting is the idea that companies have all kinds of effects on society and the environment. So for example, uh, if you have an automobile company, you're selling a car that is polluting the air, that's causing climate change, that's increasing a, a rates of asthma and allergies. And the company that makes the car needs to be responsible for those externalities. And those externalities need to be charged back to the company. So full cost accounting is including in the financial responsibility of a business all of its unintended and often negative consequences onto society. And there is a wonderful guy at Harvard University, George Sefarim, who calculated what that is. And so for a company like ExxonMobil, $100 billion additional expense if they had to pay for the climate change impact of the CO2 emissions from their sale of petroleum products. 
Marianne, from your perspective as a chair of the Race and Equity Working Group, how do you look at then full cost accounting? Right now, as we're going through COVID, we know about this disproportionate weight of COVID on black and brown bodies. Those who've hired in a racist fashion, what is the full cost accounting measure for that? That puts disproportionately black and brown bodies on the front line and in harm's way? Well, that's a huge question and is the perfect segue after this answer into reparations because of the intense costs related to marginalization and when it comes to, of course, unfair wages. And so when you're not paying people what it is that they're worth, for example, essential workers, then what that means is those people who, again, are relying on, say, social services. So the full cost accounting might be, part of that would be, well, what is the taxpayer expense for, you know, underpayment of wages to your, to your staff? Another unaccounted for cost would be healthcare. So the, when you look at the health disparity and you're talking about things like untreated or undiagnosed chronic conditions that are so severely impacting the, not only the health and well-being, but the actual lives, we're talking life death issues here. Um, that impact, what is the cost of that? When you think about education, if your children, the children of your workers can't afford to live in a community that has an excellent public education system or go to a private school, well then what are the repercussions in the impact, long-term impact, those, the lack of, of a good education for future workforce? I mean, it's, it's so complex and intersectional when it comes to the impact that um, of, of, of poor business practices and how they impact uh, communities that are not participants in the growth and equity of a company. One of the other points that you raise in the study is the wealth tax. And we've all heard about the wealth tax and we all know we're supposed to be ooh, so against it. But the point that you made, you know, leads me to ask the question about, well, what about all the surcharges that are paid as a poverty tax, paid for every day by poor people? Surcharges, even in terms of business practices, for example, who you get to charge higher interest rates on because they're not earning as much as somebody else, which goes to what you have under the category of worker well-being provide reparations for Native communities, provide reparations for descendants of enslaved Black Americans. Why should corporate America be responsible for that, Marianne? Because corporations have profited from it and still continue to do so. So if your company has been benefiting from a system that is designed on low wages, that in fact, America has been based on, first it was free labor, and then the lowest wage labor you could possibly get away with, and then the immigration problem that really began because of the businesses that lured people to come and work at their businesses because they could pay them under the table at $2 an hour. So we have a whole system built on low wages. And then you have um, within the system, you know, because of redlining and, and, and th those factors, uh, predatory lending, housing discrimination, all of those factors are woven into the fabric of how businesses have been able to profit. They profit built on a system that marginalizes people, keeps people um, at, at a point where they can get away with, get away with paying less money, get away with you know, you're lucky to work here. You're lucky, you're lucky to even, you know, have a job, you know what I mean? So the, the idea that this has created this imbalance in the economy where you have this top 1% who have over more than half of the country's wealth and while you have the rest of the population living in poverty on a system designed to work that way, the only way to begin to create balance the only way to sort of get to the point where we can 
right the system. And I think you and I had talked early before. What we're talking about in, a, in this new administration is not just progress, but transformation. We need transformation in how we approach what our economy looks to look like and creating balance. Reparations is the way. Now, how we structure it, what the package looks like, there are a lot of ideas about baby bonds, free education or you know, advanced education systems, getting rid of debt. There's lots of different solutions. Land trusts, I think land and business ownership, so people can have some sort of sovereignty and investment in their own future, some ownership. Part of the American way is ownership. Reparations needs to empower that kind of movement. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be the ultimate irony if the reparations for Native communities was land? (laughs) (laughs) As it should be. As it should be. Jeffrey, what is the takeaway that you want to leave the audience with today? That business can be not the way they've been in the past, but in the future, a way to help make the world a better place. Business has contributed to so many of the problems that we face on the planet and society. The time has come for business to change. The time has come for business to take responsibility for their stakeholders, step up to the plate, look in a holistic, systemic way at how they can contribute to solving the problems that we face, not creating more of them. My thanks to Jeffrey Hollander, Marianne Howland, and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast and for more information about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC. All rights reserved. Thank you.